Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. So today on the show, my name is Corin Woodmass, I'm host of Truth About Exits, and my good buddy Dan Andrews has agreed to join the podcast today, but he's flipped the tables and has started interviewing me <laughs> instead Correct. of me interviewing him. This uh, podcast is new, so what's the concept? So the concept of Truth About Exits, thanks for asking, Dan, is I found now that I've I've been dealmaking for a few years and I'm talking to to investors and professional buyers, corporate development guys that are doing this for a profession. What I've realized is doing one exit can be a good or a bad experience. And oftentimes people that have an exit instantly become, hey, I can help you sell your business or prepare for sale or think about selling, which is actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. But what I've seen is the oftentimes a deal that closes only more a timing thing. I call it almost lightning in a bottle. So we've seen some deals that 100% would not have happened at any other moment in time. And the deal structure was such that it was a really great deal for the seller or the client. And other times we've had different deals that matched a lot of those same criteria and just the result was very different. So the, that's a long way of saying the, the truth about exits is all about every side of the deal. So sellers, we're interviewing people that have clients of ours that have successfully sold, clients of ours, like a mutual friend I interviewed yesterday, um, that had went through the sale process and decided not to sell. So that was interesting. Um, also wanting to talk to the buy side. So one of my colleagues has 20 years of corporate development, investment banking experience. So he's been on both sides of the transactions. He's done about 2.8 billion in deals. So we'll be, we have a dedicated show once a week on this podcast to talk about his experience of doing things like roll-ups and um, deal structures and what it looks like from the buy side and the sell side and also capital raising. So all of that will be super interesting. And then talking to people like yourself that have had an exit and then had some time to really think about it. And in your case, even write a book about it, which I thought was amazing, called Before the Exits. So we'll definitely get into that. So the title, The Truth About Exits, implies that there's something that's not well known in the business buy-sell world, like you're going to reveal something. So what surprised you like in your journey? What have you discovered that isn't typically talked about? Oh, man, so much. And I do have some questions for you too, but I'll, I'll answer that one because that's a good question. So some of the things that surprise me, how people talk about, when I say people, business owners, how groups of business owners talk about exits, talk about buyer types, and partially because of non-disclosure agreements, you never really get to the heart of what the deal structure was or what it took to get to that level. Everyone, it's like revenue in business. Everyone knows their revenue and talks revenue, right? No one talks about net profit or how much their business is sucking all the cash out of their life. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with an exit. You maybe have a, a public list price and people see that 
your business was for sale at, at whatever multiple or whatever list price. And then if it sells, the average person will assume that you got all of that cash at close. There was no other drama around the deal and buyers were lined up wanting your asset because it was the perfect business that had never been seen before. And that's just not the case. You know, most times people are selling for a reason. Uh, most times it's out of fear. And I'd love to talk, get your perspective on that too. But that's, that's what I've seen. That's the most interesting thing, right, is, is how it's never the same. There's no two deals that are ever the same. Even if you're dealing with the same buyer, for instance, it, it will be they'll see something completely different that you don't see or they're at a different moment in time. You know, actually getting an exit, there's a lot of timing that goes into selling a business, which is why we focus on building as big a buyer pool as possible to give people as many options as possible. Um, in deal making, I say one is none. So if, if you have one buyer, that's interested oftentimes that means nothing you need multiple people interested do you know your deal volumes like your sort of total deal volume that you've done so far yes can you say it no (laughs) why not and there's a there's a reason for that there's a few things that go into that and i'm focused on where we're going not where we've been so my goal for this year is to close 20 million in transactions next year is 100 million in transactions And I can tell you combined in the few years since we started, we haven't hit 20 million yet, but I can see where this business is going and more importantly, where our buyers are. We just ticked over a billion dollars in registered buyer pool, which is nuts. And a lot of those guys want the large deals. I was messaging you about being in New York recently, and that that alone is a $10 million deal. So there's the volume. You mean you are going to New York to work on a $10 million deal that's part of your that you're in charge of, basically, or that you're hoping to close. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Corn, you've done a lot of different types of businesses. Why does the world need another business broker? I feel like it's a traditional entrepreneur. You, um, as, a, as a lifetime entrepreneur, you get an itch when something's wrong and you see an opportunity and you see a problem or a gap in the market and you just have to fill it. I would, at the beginning, I really resisted doing this because I was very happy. As as you know, we've met in multiple countries all around the world. And I love that. I love the freedom to just go in and move. And this business is actually the bigger the deal gets, the, the more professional the buyers are. We actually need to be in locations to get deals closed. And that limits the amount of travel. And I couldn't make it to DCBKK last year and, and hang out with you guys in Chiang Mai. But that's a choice, right? And the reason I'm doing this uh, is a couple fold. So I, I find that, and you've talked about this before, is the average business broker, it doesn't really have the seller's best interest at heart, I don't believe. And there's a gap between a business broker and someone like an investment banker or M&A advisor. So our approach is we look at the person behind the deal and the business. And we say, well, what would it take to get the absolute best outcome for this business? And oftentimes when I first talk to people, it's not to sell right now. Like that's not the option. That's not the best option to get them the outcome they want. Um, A multitude of factors. So I like to think of it when I talk to someone the first time is I need them to think about or convince themselves to sell as opposed to not sell because we always start from a default position of not selling. And the real concept behind that is to get the absolute best outcome for each client, not have hundreds of listings. That's just not my model. So I've been on both sides of transactions and I just want to, I want to help each client get the best outcome for them. When you're like flying to New York and there's these big buyers there and they're excited about your inventory of potential opportunities, how do you disclose to them that like, hey, 
I'm actually trying to maximize how much this sells for. That's pretty standard in the industry, actually. For you know, investment bankers or M and A guys, that's that's what they do. They take a deal to market. They try and maximize value by finding the right buyer fit or the right buyer pool. So we're just following a different model, I guess. You know, it's interesting because we put out so much data and we've been watching this market for so long. Oftentimes, the buyers are, are asking me about or our team about value, deal structure, transfer process, those type of things. They're keen to know what it actually takes to get these deals done. These guys in New York. They're traditional, more traditional M&A guys. So they've done a lot of deals in different verticals, but a brand that sells mostly via Amazon is different to them and they want to know how they should view that deal. That's where we can add value. A few years ago, you were talking on the podcast about uh, trends in the industry. I think you do a really good job of making it easy to understand like what's going on in the Amazon space. How would you describe the last couple years in terms of people building businesses on Amazon and what's happening there? Yeah, a lot's changed. <laughs> in the beginning, but I literally had buyers that would say, I'll buy anything that sells on Amazon. And now it's uh, definitely not the case. There's just more sophistication because there's more inventory on the market and there's more deals that aren't selling through. You know, not everyone, because we're so focused on this space and we're watching the whole market, we can see the, the overall macro trends, if you will, in the in the marketplace. And we don't get visibility on every deal, of course. There's a lot of, uh, there's no public registry or public repository of information on private business sales. There just that doesn't need to be, so there isn't. And and getting information, like I mentioned before, NDAs come into play and a lot of people don't want to share information, which is fine. You know, I'd be open to it, but you need everyone to be on the same page. So the biggest trends we've seen, an abundance of deals on the market. So there's a lot of listings. So a lot of people have heard other people sell. They're like, yep, I'll go out. I'll, I'll sell my business too. And that's just not the case, right? It's the overall sell-through rate last year, confirmed sales. It was about 20% of the market sold through. And that's a, everywhere. So we find anything that's publicly available, whether it's someone trying to sell their business themselves through a broker, through a marketplace, um, through a traditional business broker, we've got about 60 or 70 different brokers or marketplaces that we're tracking. And there's a lot of listings on the market. There's about 230 deals live right now available at all different price points. But that's the the biggest takeaway is the because there's so much inventory on the market, even a novice investor at the six-figure range can easily see 50, 60 deals and figure out what's a good business and what's not. So that's the biggest change we've seen for sure. Who are the people... Because you get to see like the inside baseball of many of these deals. Who are the people that you sort of squint your eyes a little bit and smirk and say, wow, they're really, those people got this thing figured out. Like who's winning right now? On which side of the Well, that's my question, I guess. How are people winning oh, okay. on either side? Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, that's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Right now, I strongly believe that it's the buy side that's winning. Um, so... Another trend we're seeing under a million dollar list price is the the multiples are dropping and they're very soft because of, partially because of the inventory, partially because there's there's no one helping people see what's a, a good deal or helping them necessarily understand how to make their deal better. Or maybe they just don't care. They just want out, right? The multiples are softer there. I think the buy side in that range, the zero to a million, you need to see a lot of deals to get a good deal for you. I was talking to a lady last night at this conference and she's a traditional, she runs a traditional manufacturing business and she has uh, retailers sell her product on Amazon, for instance. And we were talking to her about, well, why don't you take back control of your 
your own product and your own brand. She didn't quite realize you could do that. But then she was also saying that she acquired a small brand in the economic downturn of 0809. She went and bought another brand and because of her distribution, she could blow this brand up. And we were talking to her about picking up Amazon-based brands and then putting them into her distribution channels and she could get an easy win. Maybe she could double or triple the business in a year or two, right? Because of her existing infrastructure and relationships. So I feel like anyone that comes into this space on the buy side with unfair advantage, so whether it's distribution, it's more capital, it's a better understanding of marketing outside of Amazon. We're at a conference right now and they were talking about this yesterday actually is um, a lot of people have, when I say people, a lot of business owners that sell brands product brands via Amazon, because it's relatively easy to get into that ecosystem. And you can you can basically grow a business really fast without traditional marketing and sales skills. So anyone that has traditional digital marketing, offline marketing, direct response kind of marketing chops can come in and, and take something that's working that customers love and then build it outside of Amazon and then not come in with the fear mindset. Because a lot of times, I talk about this a lot, but a lot of times the only reason clients are thinking about selling their business is fear. That's the main motivator is what if, what if this all goes away, right? And you, yeah. you talk about this too. Um, I love hearing you talk about your story. <laughs> Maybe we can uh, reschedule it. I'll, I'll, interview you. I'll interview you about that. What about the sell side? Who's winning on the sell side? Right now, there's a few. Um, I think there's definitely a subset, unfortunately, that are seriously just pumping and dumping at different levels. So you'll see this a lot at the the lower levels of enterprise value. So under a hundred thousand, under five hundred thousand. There's there's brands that have just been pumped up in a short period of time, and there's no real they the seller themselves don't know if the business will continue. So if they get a cash out at two to three times earnings, that's a win for them. What they don't know is whether that will continue, whether it will grow. They just want out. And and that's one way to do it. So I would say that's probably a win for them. But the ones that I'm really seeing that are winning, brands and businesses that have built such momentum behind their business that it's legit getting uncomfortable. So they their brand is growing so fast that they need to put in more capital but to do that, their lines of credit are personally guaranteed. More of their net worth is, is built up in this business, and it's it's getting uncomfortable. Maybe they're the sole owner of that business, and it's becoming uncomfortable. That's the perfect time to – not the perfect time, but that's one way to win is you've built a monster, and you can, you can exit, pass it on to someone instead of restraining growth. So that's another way to win. Um, also, there's a lot of buyers that are that are interested in keeping those founders on and providing growth capital. So that's another another win. You don't actually have to if you're on a monster and you're just needing help with the financing side. There's buyers that are actually interested in that. The whole private equity space really was built around these type of deal structures to keep the the founders in, have them take some chips off the table and give them growth capital access to more distribution to grow the business. Or maybe they're looking to do add-on acquisitions to that brand, that business, to make it stronger and then sell it in a few years' time. And if you retain, say, 20% of the deal, you'll get 
they call it the second bite of the apple in the private yeah. equity world. This is their whole pitch, right? <laughs> Hang on to 20% and we'll sell this in five years, guaranteed for 10 times more. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and depends on the deal structure. Sometimes they're really, they're, they're sharp. I mean, this is all they do. They're professional deal makers, which is another reason why I started this show, <laughs> to really highlight what that is and what the real motivations are. And, you know, as cool as that sounds, holding back 20%, getting another exit, the main, I guarantee you, the main reason that offer is on the table is to reduce the risk of the buy side, not improve your chances in the future as the seller. So that's something, if you understand the motivations on both sides, that's where the real power is to understand why an offer is like it is. One of the things that interests me just in life in general, I'm just going to say this out loud, is like important things that no one is writing about or producing content on. Because I think like Google has subconsciously persuaded us that like everything important in life has like written about and it's just not. So here's an example of something I'm seeing that I just haven't heard a lot about, which is over the last five years, there's been a big trend of people in the middle of their lives who have money buying themselves into entrepreneurship. And they're doing it through internet businesses. And I'm wondering, do you have any insight into how these people are faring, generally speaking? That's a great question. There's whole MBA programs on this too. I think it's Harvard have a, a course called Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. I read a book by these guys. I can't remember the, the professors. Um, we, actually, we actually speak to a lot of these people. And so this is one of the truths about exits and that I'd love to dig into. So I'll give you a preview here. So on the sell side or in business groups like the DC, for instance, someone will mention private equity, private equity groups. And people, the average business owner thinks that's one thing, but there are many different versions of a private equity group. There's a group that actually has raised a fund, which is not the person you'll be talking to most of the time. Most of the funds that I'm talking to, legit raised funds, have anywhere from $100 million to $100 billion, with a B, dollars. So they're not typically looking at a seven or eight figure or six or seven figure e-commerce business, for instance. Uh, the people that you'll be talking to at that range on the buy side that say they're a private equity group and are, are typically independent sponsors or fundless sponsors is, is the better term. What they actually do is they have some chops in, they either have, have an MBA, uh, maybe they've done a program like I just mentioned, maybe they have some industry experience. They go out and find deals they tie up the deal and then they go back to their investors that they've already talked to about that concept. And their investors say, yeah, sure, we'll back you. They're, just, they're rich. I often joke about this is golf buddies, right? That's what this yes. we're talking about right <laughs> yeah. now. Pass, passing the hat at the golf club is <laughs> another way to view it. <laughs> okay. Just to decode Absolutely. the professionalism here a little bit. But what do these small private equity groups have to do with these independent buyers? Yeah, so typically I've actually come across some that are both. So they're in the middle of their career. Maybe they've had, and there's two guys I'm thinking of right now that we've we've been through a couple deals. Uh, we, we haven't closed yet, haven't come to terms, but these guys are perfect examples. They worked for massive consulting firms. They've done, you know, they've worked on billion dollar brands. So they have chops in the space. Mm. 
because they were executives, they earned good incomes and the like. They have a good network, but they also have the golf buddies, right? And their golf buddies are talking to them like, you've got all this experience, we'll back you. And if you go find this type of deal and they're on the flip side, they've come up with a thesis and they've banded together two guys that have similar experience. They say, well, let's go acquire these brands. So they have a game plan, but even these guys, they have background. They understand in this case, because we deal mostly with Amazon based brands, they understand the Amazon ecosystem, but they still need to go past the hat right? When they go do the deal. So they've given themselves a two-year window. I've talked to them a lot about what they're doing because <laughs> um, I'm very fascinated by it as well, that they haven't actually closed a transaction yet. And I'm not sure if that's 100% because they've not found the right opportunity. Maybe they haven't come to terms like we didn't on the deal we were working on. They've actually put in a couple offers now on different deals. So that's so I haven't seen anyone yet that's actually closed on that as I've seen a lot of people thinking about that as a concept. Um, however, there are other, actually, sorry, I have, I've seen one guy that had somewhat of a crossover between entrepreneurial and professional type career. So he was a, I believe he was a minority owner in a business that sold and then moved into being an independent sponsor and has now closed a number of deals. So put together the right team. So I don't think there's a there's not an easy answer because I haven't seen well, me, too many on the other side. Yeah, and you don't have to answer it, but here's like a person that I'm dreaming of. And I've seen a few cases, but not many. This person is, let's say, 45, 50 years old, is a civil engineer, is really interested in the entrepreneurial lifestyle, has like X amount of money saved up for retirement and wants to chop off 200 or 100 grand of it to go out and buy an Amazon business. That's the buyer okay. profile I'm talking about. How are those people faring? Or do you see a lot of that? Essentially, like the career person who's using their retirement savings to buy into entrepreneurship. So, right now, we haven't closed a lot of deals with these, with that type of archetype. And the reason for that is most of those guys are using or wanting to use SBA backed debt. And we've only had a handful of deals or one deal, actually. Uh, we're prepping some now, one deal that was actually fit that criteria because a lot of our deal flow is outside of the US. So it's outside of the mold. So they'd need to actually put in a couple of million themselves. And that's in cash or, you know, they can't really come up with that close. Is the answer. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, so part of it is the deal size we're doing. Um, I was thinking back a few years ago when we were still doing six, we started off just doing six-figure plus deals, and now we do seven and eight-figure plus deals. That's our, our wheelhouse. So I have seen we have closed deals at that range with similar type experience, but all of them were, were actually business people. So we had offers from professionals, but yeah. So I think that's a long way of saying as a concept, I agree. It's interesting. Um, if you want my opinion on how I'd look at it, if I was a professional coming into acquisitions, happy to talk about that. But unfortunately, I don't have any point of reference to say, well, this guy did this and it's going great. And this guy sure. tanked and no, no, he no big lost deal. everything. Well, what advice would you give to a person in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So I would study. I would study my ass off. <laughs> um, if you want to go into Amazon, I'd learn everything there is to know about Amazon and see if it's something, if it's a business model, you'd actually, a business type you actually want to run, number one. Yeah. 
Next, I'd read everything by Keith Cunningham and really dig deep into his thoughts. He's very anti-online business. Um, he, he likes to buy car washes and he loves that. I think he has a plumbing business that kicks off like $3 million in cash flow a year or something. It's, it's ridiculous. But he's a serial business acquirer and business owner as opposed to a business operator. He's the guy who taught Robert Kiyosaki basically how he thinks he's about like business. Dad. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'd go deep into that and get a handle on it because I, I think from the outside, you can look and see these these returns and see the net margins and they look really great. But if you're not coming into this space with an unfair advantage, and I call unfair advantage capital, experience, um, distribution channels, partners, um, you're real, it's, it's high risk. It's not Bitcoin high risk, but it's high risk. Let me give you an observation. You tell me whether I'm bullshitting. I think that people who buy businesses with a view on like what they're lacking and what their like expertise as an operator will bring to the table are generally not nearly as successful as people who just bring assets to the table. Specifically, like distribution is a big one. Like so, mm. if for example. I'm drawing a th- uh, maybe a gray line here or a thin line here between operational expertise and like the asset of a distribution channel. So for example, like let's say like you know that if you buy a company, like its SEO rank will go from like 10 to one or whatever in its category. Like that's more of an asset to me than like kind of mindset where it's like, well, I'll run this business better essentially. So maybe, maybe the, my dis- initial distinction isn't right, but the idea is like when I see people buy businesses because they think they'd be good at running them and fixing them, it doesn't seem like there's those people are having nearly as much success as the people who are bringing like a concrete asset to that business when they buy it. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, mate. And one parallel for this is back when I was consulting, um, I read a lot of Jay Abraham's stuff and he's someone to definitely uh, research in the marketing side of, of the world. But one thing he said, and a few other consulting type gurus say this, is when you're consulting, the thing that no one really gets until they get it is that the client you work with, the ideal client is someone that's already successful. It's already They're already on a growth trajectory. <laughs> you can give them a little bit of advice and that will mean a massive result to them. You don't want to start with someone that's starting from zero. And it's the same with, with a business. It's kind of, it's attractive because you're not starting from zero with the business, but oftentimes people don't think about the operational jobs it takes to actually run the thing, let alone grow it. If you're coming in completely blind to a, a space, that's a losing proposition. That's gambling. If you're coming in, like you said, with some, some assets, some real assets behind you, whether it's distribution, it's, it's supply side. Supply side is huge. If you can take margin and improve the margin, you're making more money straight out of the gate. So maybe you've got supply side knowledge and you're just wanting to plug into another sales channel. Um, like I mentioned before, the, the manufacturer we're talking to, she has extreme domain experience and unfair advantage distribution channels in that market. So for her, buying a brand that's just on Amazon is a no-brainer. It doesn't matter that she's not an Amazon expert. So yeah, I would definitely look for the most leverage possible. And I love the quote from Warren Buffett, which everyone talks about, but I kind of see this as a I'll explain how I see this quote. So everyone knows that Warren Buffett says the first rule of investing is never lose money. The second rule is see rule number one. 
And what I think is missed here, and maybe you get it, and maybe a lot of the audience does, and it just took me a while to, to see this, is you definitely make money going in, but your what you're investing in needs to have some value already beyond what you're seeing on the balance sheet or the, the P&L. So like you were saying, if you're bringing assets to the table, you can increase the, the value of the business, the revenue of the business right. immediately. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say a rule of thumb that to me is a correlate to Warren Buffett's quote there would be don't invest or buy a business that isn't immediately worth more because you did so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If, if the deal structure doesn't deal structure as well, you, you know, if you're on the buy side, you can, you can create whatever deal structure you want. Actually, that manufacturer, she's super sharp. She didn't have the cash for the deal. She, he actually got a deal and it was one of the D's is why she was able to get this deal because unfortunately the, the sell side, um, unfortunately the sell side had some, some health issues, right? So there's a health problem there. And not quite death, which is the, the D's, death, divorce. Or, so she got um, a deal where she was actually paying out an earnout structure where she paid less than the business was making already to pay the, the seller out, which is unheard of, right? So there's, there's deal structures that are an absolute winner. So that was a percentage of the actual earnings of the business less than it was earning, which is a perfect deal. My final question for you, Corin, thank you for being such a great willing interviewee. Okay, so you took some notes on before the exit the book. If we were to do a second edition and give you a chapter, what are some things that you would add to it or change some things around so that buyers and sellers or so that sellers would be better informed? That's a hard one to answer because I actually I really love the way you put that together. So I'd I'd want to be involved if there was a a new, I don't. I think an. It's a hypothetical be, question, you know, Corin. I'm not talking about the actual book. I just mean like, you know, say it was a discussion with people. Are there things that the book missed, or could have emphasized more, or added to, or what? What does mm. the next book need to say? Yeah. So, in from my perspective, yeah, that, that's a great. A great thing. Sorry, I take things really literally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my mind just goes there automatically. It's like, how do we fix You're like, this? Dude, That's I'm not writing question. a book, okay? So, <laughs> <laughs> if there was a continuation or a second book, I'd love it to be a continuation of what happened next because I think everyone likes a story, right? And and your story is super interesting, and your perspective is super interesting. So. It, it was a moment in time and then you've had time to reflect on it and you do love philosophy. That's why I love having conversations with you because you always see something from a different angle or you bring a different perspective. But I'd like to see some of the, maybe talking to people that have done the opposite instead of selling, what did they do instead of selling? And, you know, I've, I've managed to meet some people and you've, you've mentioned this as well, that have built real wealth by holding businesses and buying more businesses, becoming the business owner instead of the the operator and taking fear off the table and, and just growing either via acquisitions to that add-ons for that business or buying other business models and, and talking to them about that path and seeing how that differs from having an exit and then doing something else. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, that would be cool. Cause that's the big, yeah. I think that's one of the bigger questions that I received after the book Specifically, I mean, 
how do you own your business essentially? Yes. <laughs> Which is kind yes, of a crazy, absolutely. crazy thing, but that was a, you know, a big, I think it's funny when people like sum up, you know, for me, it was like writing this book was, you know, it's like close to 40,000 words and it, it's all this time and this story and stuff. But it's funny, like what people take away from it. Like the other day, uh, Taylor Pearson did a book review of it and he said, too long, didn't read. You know, he put TLDR. He said, selling your business is overrated. Like that's the takeaway. And it's like, yeah, 30, you don't need to read 35,000 words. It's just selling your business is overrated. <laughs> and it, on the entrepreneurial side, the biggest feedback I got was like, how do I run? How do I? How? Yeah. How, yes. how, how, do, how do I not sell this thing? Basically, like, how do I maintain control of a business without having to run the damn thing every day? Yeah. It's an enormous, I mean, the reason I didn't include that because it's like, well, your guess is as good as mine because <laughs> that's yes. challenging. You know, I don't know how to do it. That's why I sold. Yeah. And that's the thought experiment angle, right? Yeah. I've, I've had clients recently that literally read your book, know you personally, have had many conversations maybe over golf with you, still decided to go sell, right? It's interesting to me because sometimes selling can be, feels like it's the golden bullet. It's like, hey, I've built this thing to a point. I don't know what to do next. Let's sell it. Yeah. And sometimes that is the best option. Seriously, that could be a great option. It could be life-changing money. It could be generational wealth. If you're unlocking that kind of cash, then yes, sell if you want to, right? But think about what you're going to do next and think about alternatives. And at least, like you said in, in the book, and I've heard you speak on this topic a number of times, we've talked about it, is what, what are your other options? What else could you invest in? Like the tax alone you were mentioning um, that you guys were paying on that, that transaction is you could have really run some experiments and, and tried it, bought in a CEO, given it a go and see what happens as an alternative before going to sell. And that may take a little bit longer and not give you that instant payout. But there's, there's always a reason that someone wants to go sell their business. And I think oftentimes we're not really true to ourselves. <laughs> you know, uh, who was it that spoke at DCBKK a few years back? I'll think of his name in a sec. I can see his face. I can't think of his name. His, my favorite uh, quote from him from his talk was, lie to everyone else. Just don't lie to yourself. And I just sat, literally made me sit back in my seat and go, wow. And the true power in that statement, if you really let it sink in, is how often we actually lie to ourselves. You know, it's, how do you see people doing this, part of the this reason, selling process? Oh, absolutely. Like A lot of people won't admit that they're scared. And a lot of people won't admit that it's it's really a badge of honor to talk about with their mates that they really want to sell for. I had a seven-figure exit. It's kind of a cool thing to say I built this business from nothing and someone paid me millions of dollars for it. It's a, it's a badge of honor. It's, hey, look how great I am. Yeah. The crazy thing is on the other side of that, is, as you've talked about a lot and it's, it's in the book, is what now? That didn't make me happy. <laughs> That's not money changing life in some um, you can only mention it like money. a couple times to your buddies too or else you know what i mean like you can't be the guy who continues to remind people so it's it's just not as not as clutch as, as you might imagine as a resume and, and it's living in the past yeah so the, the crazy thing is entrepreneurs are always moving forward there's momentum forward so it's cool for a minute but then well what are you doing now dude like that's great awesome <laughs> high five 
what the fuck are you doing next? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> because without the momentum, there's, there's no, it's the tension of growing and momentum that actually makes things, makes life interesting. It's why we get up in the morning. If, if everything was easy street and everything was easy all the time, like there's no, um, no pleasure without pain, right? There's, you, you need that pressure, especially as an entrepreneur, you, you need that tension that it, it can't be a clear win. You have to know that there's a chance of failure to even go and do it. So, yeah, the, I, I'm talking a little bit pessimistically about selling, and I, I am a broker. That's my business. I sell businesses, but um, it's it's interesting to to talk about. You no, know? why, why do you? I, I why did you like embrace the book and the be wary of selling message so openly? If I'm a broker, and if I'm an advocate for sellers. And ultimately, my biggest asset is willing, happy sellers or just willing sellers rather. Why like be so enthusiastic? Why enthusiastically embrace this book and hand it to your customers and stuff? So, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So it's sort of like me, like if there was like some book about the value of like working in a corporate job and living in the same city for your whole life. I would like hand it out to every person that listens to my podcast. Like that's the equivalent of what you're doing. Like this book basically says like, don't fucking list your business with Corin. That's the point of the book. Why, so why, why are you embracing it? I think you missed the, uh, the story of your own book, my friend. <laughs> um, I, I definitely get the reason uh, you wrote it. The, the reason I like to tell people about it, like you said, share it with people and, and the like is, and I love the message is because selling isn't the best option every time. And if someone actually goes through the thought process, they maybe they try some of these experiments. They might actually build a bigger business, a more sustainable business, a business that runs without them. And guess what happens then? Right. The business is worth more. <laughs> so when they do come to sell, we'll have a bigger, better, more sustainable business to go to market with and no one loses in that scenario. Makes sense. It is yeah. funny. Um, you know, Ian mentioned it when we were selling our business and I've heard it like a broken record. Is like if you decide you're gonna sell, all of a sudden you become this superhero entrepreneur, you know? Like you figure out all your numbers. Like you didn't know your numbers for a decade and now all of a sudden you got these detailed private <laughs> profit and loss. You got this like organizational chart. Everybody's got clear responsibilities because you got to share this shit. And by the time you're selling, it's like, damn, this thing is sweet. Like this is really running well. This business is so great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's just because you've been in it so long, you know? And so long could be, four years, it could be seven years, it could be 20 years or 30 years. You know, you're, you're in the details and you really, it's not until you start seeing what you've created from the other side, which is really hard to do unless you have to go through the process because no one wants to dig into their numbers. It's, it's again, lying to yourself, head in the sand stuff. It's, well, we've got more cash at the end of the year. We're fine, right? <laughs> and revenue's growing. So that's all we need to know. <laughs> and that's, if you're really honest with yourself, honest about where your business is at, not take it personally. And if you can do that, then that's the same perspective you'll get when you go through the sale process. And you'll be forced to do that, more importantly, which is really uncomfortable. You, you know, you don't want someone saying, well, what you built was shit and why did you do that? And that's ridiculous. Well, 
you won't really get that sort of stuff. But there'll be a lot of questions about line items and um, costs and expenses and why haven't you grown this bigger? And and that can be hard. Those can be hard questions to to be asked because you're on a call with someone or you're meeting with them. You need to answer with something, right? Yeah, I could keep going. I'm much better at questions and answers. <laughs> I love the deflection immediately. <laughs> hit, hit record. Hit record. <laughs> Tell me about what you're doing. <laughs> you're a can genius, I have this file? friend. <laughs> of course you can. You. Of course you Let's can. share it, if you don't mind. Let's double yeah. publish. No, definitely. Was there some, so you well, bounced around. like Your career, to me, is, is, is typical of a lot of people's. Like, if I'm just like thinking broadly about like the history of knowing you, it was sort of like... You know, it's sort of like you're being on a runway and like you're on the runway for a long time, like sort of thing to thing and like paying the bills, kind of moving along the runway. And then all of a sudden you took off. So was there something that you weren't honest with yourself about? Was that part of why you were able to take off or was it simply a matter or was it something else? 100%. And that's that's um, verbal Aikido right there. Yes, of course. Of course, I was lying to myself. Um, interestingly, I don't think... So I'll give you uh, the how how that happened. So you're actually to blame. So I was sitting in a cubicle <laughs> uh, back in Australia, and I was listening to this little podcast called the Lifestyle Business Podcast, and I heard these guys talk about entrepreneurship and coconuts, <laughs> sitting on the beach, building a business. And I was like, I want to fucking do that. And so I I went out there and I I started. Um, trying it out. And you, because I, I guess you're the, um, the sum of the five people you hang out with, right? The people you hang out with really matter. And what I noticed was being in a more lifestyle um, focused entrepreneur group, the, you, you kind of default into what other people are thinking is cool and what other people are, are praising others for. So, oh, wow, you have this type of business model. So that's really cool. You don't have to get on calls with people. Um, others might be um, a different way of gaming the system and it's short term, but as of this Friday night, I'm king of the world. And I think I just needed to go through some of those different models and, and get it get it, access to it for myself. And it's funny, I don't know if we've actually talked about this, but a few years ago we are in Berlin we're doing the four-hour workweek lifestyle. We'd bought affiliate sites who we were building out our e-commerce business. So on paper, we we're making money. But internally, I was, I was bordering on depression. <laughs> and that's super weird to say because I had everything I thought I wanted. And I got there and I thought it sucked. And when I realized, when I did deep dives and kind of figured out why that was, it was because the... I, as a person, I need to be talking to people. I need to be, and now I, I realize I need to be doing deals. I need momentum. I need to have have interactions with people that have um, the skill sets, a lot of money, like th these type of people I just, I can't get enough of talking to. So I talk to investors with hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy, and I just want to talk to them all day about what, what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. That's fascinating to me. And if I can eventually close a deal with someone like that in whether it takes a year, 10 years, 20 years, I'll still do what I'm doing and I'd do it for free. And then on the sell side, because I've been 
on, on both sides of the transaction. I, I want to help clients get the best deal. So that actually gives me more energy. So when I'm on calls, um, even if it's late at night or early mornings or whatever, I've got to fly to go do a deal. I might be tired when I get up. I might be tired after a long flight. But when I'm in that room and after, after I go do the deal, I'm beaming, absolutely beaming. It's, it lights me up. And, that, and that's not the same for everyone. Back in the day, if I had have said um, to, and this isn't a, a, a slide on Chiang Mai, I love Chiang Mai, but let's say I was at Small House and I said, hey, I was, small I was house. up till 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a little pub in Chiang Mai. I love Small House. Like? Why do you love it? it? <laughs> it's just it's like a, a lounge room with all your all your mates <laughs> but it's a pub <laughs> although there's a few mosquitoes so you don't necessarily want that in your lounge room but no it's cool it's just a cool little dive bar <laughs> and so if you were there what would you be saying mm. yeah so so if if i could rewind um to those early days and i know a lot of these guys are in different spots now but even if i was talking this is a better example if i was talking to myself four years ago and saying, hey, Corin, I just flew out to New York and I was talking to these guys about this deal and we're, we're working on it and we're, we've got all this diligence work to go through and we're, we're on more calls and there's tension and we don't know if we're going to get the deal done. That would have been in my what I thought I wanted back then. I would have said, why are you doing that? Just just relax, have another beer, go go do something else. You know, Why, why are you putting yourself through this? this nightmare. But in actual fact, I wasn't necessarily lying to myself. I just didn't know that that was the, the thing. And, and you can only get that by the, the good thing was that I, it's the gift and the curse of it was I needed to see that four hour work week lifestyle, go to a bunch of countries to realize that that's not really me. And that's weird to, to realize, right? Yeah. What is it for you? What's your thing? That's interesting. What's my thing? Yeah. Tinkering with ideas. I love, I love connecting concepts and figuring out how they can be useful. I think of like, I love like an idea that can be used like a shovel, you know, like now that we've got this, now we can go use it. And, uh, that's, that's what really excites me. That's even like, I, I, I like the way I write blog posts and podcasts is the same way I write emails to the team. It's like, I figure out like the pattern give it a name, figure out the concept and then like make a rule, you know, like here's our rule based on, you know, like how we're going to do events going forward. Like, you know, those sorts of principles, rules, structures, systems, like figuring out what they are. That's, that's what excites me. Wow. I'm really surprised. I've known you a while. I wouldn't have called you a rule guy. <laughs> what, what does a rule mean to you? What what does that mean to you? What's well, the maybe rule? the rule isn't the right word, but like the book is a good example of like there was this mishmash of feeling and outcome, which is like our business sale. And the book ended up being a distillation of concepts that could be used like tools for other people in that situation. So that's why the whole book is mm. a series of thought experiments. Like these are actual real experiments so maybe i was trying to get at this idea of of a principle or an experiment or an idea just an idea and uh their ideas that i don't know where they came from all of them some of them i just found laying around and some of them i just thought i did the hypothetical like well, what would i wish i would have thought you know and uh 
And so that's ideally like people would read the book and say, well, this is a tool, you know? And so like those things exist in our businesses as well. Like, you know, when a customer says this, you know, uh, how should we behave? And so like you write that rule and then you announce it to the company and like, that's how you build a company, I think, or how you build a culture. And that's the part of the running a business that really excites me. I mean, for example, as like a really simple example, like recently someone asked us to sponsor our conference and podcast that I didn't necessarily feel comfortable with. And so in that, in that, and I didn't exactly know why. Nobody really knew why. And so the question was like, well, should we take their money because they're offering us money or and feel like vaguely uncomfortable about it? Or should we say no and then continue to feel vaguely uncomfortable about it? Or the third route is to say, well, why do we feel uncomfortable about this? Like, what's the principle here? Like, what's the idea? And you sit and you think about it and you hammer, you walk around and you talk to people and you debate it. And then hopefully sometime within the next fiscal quarter, you can actually write the damn thing down and create a company policy. And that's always been the part of companies that excites me. Is there, they're like, it's the closest thing you can have. Like you, you get to like run a little country. Basically you get to write the constitution every day. You know, you get to write the rules, you get to write the laws, you get to all that, you know, write the treaties. (laughs) And, uh, and so for me, like, you know, I guess like publicly people would know me as someone who talks a lot or writes a lot, but like, that's always been how, like how I grew companies too. So that's where that all came from. So setting the structure. So you get to be the, the rule maker and that's what makes it interesting. That's awesome. There you go. Good question. Huh. Hmm. I love it. So what, what would you, so, so my portion of this interview, I'm, I'm is running over. Out of- my, por- my interview is over. <laughs> I'm stealing this audio and I'm going to profit wildly off of it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, mate, I, I'm going to have to run, Fantastic. but I really want to, uh, to reschedule because I have a ton of questions I didn't get to ask you, but um, I'm, I'm actually going to publish this because I think it's kind of cool. And it was, it was fun. I love being um, challenged on ideas and you're always a great verbal sparring partner like that. I love it. It's always more fun to ask than to answer. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) So thank you. I'll I'll get you next time. All right, buddy. (laughs) All right, brother. Talk soon. Send me this file. I will. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world 
is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you would like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.